1930 was a big year for Arsenal Football Club. They won the FA Cup in May. They started what would be their first title-winning season of 1930-31, and they seemed to do something every other week that the FA objected to. Yep, the biggest matchup that English football saw that season wasn't between two teams. It was between Arsenal and the Football Association. It all seems to have started in July. It was, barring the backdrop of the Great Depression, an ordinary football off-season. Players were moving clubs. Transfer rumours were in the papers. Yes, they existed before Rupert Murdoch, and Arsenal wanted to sign an Austrian. Rodolf Hayden had impressed everyone with his goalkeeping display in an international against England in May that year. The performance caught the eye of Arsenal manager Herbert Chapman. The club were willing to spend two and a half thousand pounds for him too, not quite breaking the bank. The club had set the world transfer fee record two years earlier, splashing nearly eleven thousand pounds on David Jack, but it wasn't nothing either. The story isn't exactly a famous one, although it has been told before. Arsenal agreed a fee for Hayden and organised work as a chef for him. This was 1930, after all. There were even still amateur players knocking about in the first division then. Hayden was denied entry to the country on arrival in Dover for not having a work permit, and thus a big old debate was opened up in England about foreign footballers. In some ways, it wasn't that different to the debates that happen in the present day about domestic versus foreign players. Broadly speaking, that we have good enough footballers here. Why do you need to buy from abroad? They'll be taking places that could go to help our domestic footballers improve. The Great Depression coloured things for some people as well, though. It might have been conflating the two situations just a little bit, but Cecil Hadley, sports editor of the People newspaper, jumped on the story early on, noting angrily that England had an unemployment figure of two million at the time. He said that if the Ministry of Labour didn't step in to stop the transfer, then the Football League should do so. Presumably, in Hadley's mind, anyone in the dole queue could step in and play a net for the Gunners. As it all ended up playing out, Hadley got his wish on both fronts. Hayden never played for Arsenal, and in 1931, the FA passed a resolution banning professional footballers who weren't British subjects. They could still play if they had a two-year residency qualification, though, which is how, shortly after the Second World War, German goalkeeper Bert Troutman was able to play professionally for Manchester City, having settled in England after having been a prisoner of war. By the end of July 1930, the press were reporting the Hayden transfer was confirmed, but the player was denied entry at Dover. Curiously, Chapman is reported as saying that the refusal to allow the goalkeeper to enter the country. Was all a misunderstanding. Everything has been set right, and Hayden has landed. He said. Sometime shortly after this, Margaret Bondfield, the government's Minister of Labour and the UK's first female cabinet minister, wrote to the English and Scottish football associations in what seems to be a case of, "Tell us what you want us to do." An article in the Sheffield Daily Telegraph on the sixteenth of August says that the letter had been written a week or two ago. Which would have been early August, maybe a few days after Hayden had been turned away at Dover. An official from the Ministry of Labour is quoted, and it's probably useful to repeat what they said here for a bit of context of what was going on at the time. We issue permits to employers to enable foreigners to come in when it is a clear case of necessity that foreign labour should be obtained. 
that is, where work has to be executed that cannot be done by the labour obtainable at home. In the case of football, it might pardonably be said that Great Britain is the home of football, that we have all the best players and that there can hardly be any foreigners who would be needed to supplement them. Actually, I'll jump back in here. The first couple of lines there is a pretty boring explanation of work permit policy. The sentence after that seems like a pretty clear opinion from a government official on whether they think foreign footballers should be permitted. Anyway, back to their quote. I am not aware of permits having been issued to football employers to import foreign players. There may have been an odd application or two for the purpose, but I should think such a case is very rare. At present, we are just asking for the advice of the football associations, in order that, if we do have applicants, we shall be able to deal with them in the knowledge of what the associations think about it. Both Scottish and English FA said they didn't see why there should be any change of policy and were in favour of keeping the current restrictions, which were effectively a ban. That report from the Sheffield Daily Telegraph was the 16th, remember, and just five days later there was another fairly dramatic turn in the tale. Proving that newspaper puns are nothing new, the Daily Herald ran a story on the 21st under the headline Hide and Seek Again, that the Austrian had, for a third time, arrived in Dover and for a third time been refused entry. According to the Daily Herald, the immigration authorities were astonished to see him. They wondered whether they'd missed some change of heart from the Ministry of Labour, checked in with them what the policy was, but the Ministry was still of the view that Haydn shouldn't be allowed in. On the 26th, the FA Council made their official recommendation that they would desire a continuance of the present practice of the Minister of Labour. Basically, don't let him in. Herbert Chapman was asked in response to this whether he'd try and make it fourth time the charm and attempt getting Haydn into the country once again, to which he replied, one never knows. The FA's backing of the Ministry of Labour's anti-foreign footballer stance in late August seems to have been the end of the Haydn affair, though. In October, a resolution was moved at an FA council meeting that the Rules Revision Committee be instructed to draft a rule for submission to the Council, whereby no individual other than British-born is eligible to take part in any competition sanctioned by the Football Association or any affiliated county association, unless he possesses a two-year residential qualification. That was then passed the following June. The Ministry of Labour, which set some of this in motion by sending the letters to the FA in the first place, and thereby, in my mind, passing responsibility onto them, kept their policies as they were, and the FA's ban on foreigners wasn't rescinded until 1978. Haydn, to complete his story, went on to gain a second nationality of his own. After the Arsenal move fell through, he returned to Vienna and spent another three years there before moving to Paris where he won a Ligue 1 and five Coupe de France titles with Racing Club de France Football, or RC Paris. After having played in the famous Austrian Wunder team of the 1930s, Haydn joined a rather exclusive club and played for France in a friendly against Portugal in 1940, picking up a cap for a second international team. He later served in the French army during the war. It wasn't as if Arsenal's remaining goalkeepers in the 1930-31 season were free of scandal, though. They had another foreign-born stopper on their books already. Dutchman Jerry Kaiser, signed from Margate the same summer, 
although crucially Kaiser plays as an amateur. This meant that he could actually play, although some wondered whether the Haydn situation might end up affecting him as well. The Dutch stopper made 12 appearances in the first half of the season before losing his spot to Bill Harper. Bill Harper also did not enjoy a season without scandal, suffering from what seemed a very harsh punishment in the November of that season. Fined £10 by the FA for a breach of the rules, he was then suspended for a month when the payment of the fine came in a day late. What exactly this breach was, I'm not sure, and neither was Corinthian, a correspondent for the Daily Herald in 1930. When I heard the circumstances under which Harper, the Arsenal goalkeeper, was suspended for one month, I was not surprised, Corinthian wrote, excepting in one respect. No one outside the FA knows what rule he broke. As far as Corinthian could make out, the initial fine might have been something to do with Harper's spell in the United States. Harper had left Arsenal in 1927 to play football over there, and according to Corinthian, without telling anyone that that's what he intended to do. But who knows? This was the FA, after all, who seemed to throw out declarations and resolutions just to stop people doing things. In July 1930, going back to the summer where the Haydn affair was still going on, it was reported that Arsenal would take place in a test game under artificial lights against Glasgow Rangers at Wembley. Back then, grounds didn't have floodlights, so artificial lighting was a very new thing. There'd been a trial run which a representative from Arsenal attended at the final of the North Knots League Cup that February, which had apparently been a success, although some noted that the ball, which was white for that game, needed to be replaced quite often once it became too dirty. But just a month after this Arsenal versus Rangers floodlit trial match was announced, the FA decided, alongside announcing their stance on foreign players, that they weren't a fan of floodlights either. Attention having been called, the FA's resolution read, to the fact that the playing of matches under artificial light is being organised, the council expresses their opinion that the playing of such matches is undesirable, and that clubs, members of the association, are prohibited from taking part in such games. Prohibited from playing under floodlights, and at the same time as announcing their backing for the Ministry of Labour's stance against foreign footballers too. It must have been a rotten day for Herbert Chapman. But it didn't stop there, because the FA, as well as the goalkeeper in the match under the lights, took away Chapman's clock too. I need to take a moment, because this is bizarre, to note how utterly weird football in the 1930s was. And yet, there were similarities too. The Arsenal versus Rangers floodlights match at Wembley was due to be part of a two-legged World or British Championship match each team being the FA Cup holders of their respective countries. The matchup was originally going to take place as a one-off in New York, but Arsenal cancelled their American tour that summer, and so the International Champions Cup forerunner never happened. Back on home shores, Herbert Chapman's clock was a problem because it was no ordinary timepiece. It was built with only one hand and the dial only went up to 45 minutes, supposedly to help referees with timekeeping and leave their minds free for other things. As an aside, Arsenal fans may already know this, but ones who don't may be interested, that the Highbury clock wasn't originally at what came to be known as the clock end, the south stand, but started its life at the north stand of the ground. 
This, though, is the one FA resolution that I've come across on these podcasts, ban on women's football, ban on foreign players, ban on artificial lights, that I actually agree with. At the time, there doesn't seem to have been the concept of official added time, so the referee would have had to signal to the people operating the clock when they wanted to call a stoppage. Or, if the time on the referee's watch and the grounds clock didn't match, a goal could be scored after the clock's 45 minutes had elapsed, and who knows what trouble that could cause. In fact, that did actually happen at Highbury that season, Arsenal seemingly not having taken the clock out of action straight away when the FA made their resolution. In mid-October, a goal was scored after the clock had struck 45 minutes in the second half, although the goal, as it happened, didn't matter to the scoreline anyway. Even so, that incident sparked a bit of action behind the scenes, and by the end of the month, the 45-minute clock was no longer operational. It returned during the following season, but as a regular 12-hour timepiece. So... We've had foreign players, we've had clocks, we've had floodlights, we've had suspensions for late fines for unknown breaches of the rules. But the 1930-31 season wouldn't finish without another minor coming together between Arsenal and the FA, which may give an idea of why the two parties butted heads so often. Clapton Orient, the team who would later become Leighton Orient, were in a difficult financial state in March 1931. So difficult was it for the team, who were in the 3rd Division South that season, that they approached Arsenal to help them out. Arsenal accepted, and the FA set up a committee to oversee the matter. They didn't want Arsenal Football Club to take over any management of Clapton Orient, and the Football Association gave the two clubs three months to work out what Orient's future arrangements would be, and then report back to the committee. In the end, it took a little longer than that, until August, for their situation to be sorted, and it all seems quite boring, so I'll spare you the details and, to be honest, me the hassle of learning 1930s business practices. However, what is clear is that Arsenal, the world transfer fee record holders, were a club of both means and innovation, enough that a local club would turn to them in their time of need. The FA, it seems, did not like means and or innovation very much. It would be nice if I could wrap things up there, with 1930-31 being a season of unique sparring between the Gunners and football's governing body. But sadly for my narrative, that's not the case. The summer of 1931 brought one final battle. I want you to cast your minds back for a moment, not to the 1930s, but to 2006, when John Obi Mikel joined Chelsea after having apparently signed for Manchester United. Something similar happened with Arsenal in 1931, with the Gunners taking on the role of Chelsea. John William Cameron was a Scottish centre-forward playing for Vale of Clyde, and he joined Arsenal at the end of June 1931, along with two other compatriots. The problem was, he'd already been announced as signing for Portsmouth. Somehow, there was some small technicality in the contract that Arsenal could exploit and convince the Scots to sign for them instead of the South Coast team. Portsmouth, with their shiny new player snatched out of their hands, appealed to the FA, who decided that neither club could have Cameron. Herbert Chapman was censured for having signed Cameron knowing that he'd already signed with Portsmouth, and the two teams had to pay the costs of the commission who decided the matter. So far, pretty remarkable. 
But this being Arsenal in the first couple of years of the 1930s, it seems that this debacle couldn't end peacefully. The FA's decision that neither Portsmouth nor Arsenal could have Cameron meant that everybody else was free to try and nab this highly prized forward. And who did he end up with? Tottenham Hotspur. Of course, with Arsenal, it would be Tottenham Hotspur. Was all the fuss worth it? Well, Cameron, as it turns out, didn't play for Tottenham for some time. In September, he was still technically registered as an Arsenal player, and by the 25th of that month, a report in the Dundee Evening Telegraph indicates that the FA still hadn't received the right certificate for the transfer from Vale of Clyde to Tottenham to go through. It got sorted in the end, but in November the forward went down with a knee injury and had to go through an operation for cartilage trouble. Cameron wouldn't restart training until the end of January 1932, and in April it was announced that Tottenham wouldn't be taking him on again the following season. Arsenal finished second that season. They won the next three First Division titles in a row. Fair to say that losing out on Cameron, and all those other scraps with the Football Association, didn't hurt them too much. Thank you.